0: At a time like this, it's easy to see why local news is so important and why that news should be free for everyone who needs it to be. Your support of KCUR makes this essential reporting possible. If you can, please donate KCUR.org give. And thanks.
1: Good morning and welcome to up-to-date special coverage coronavirus in Kansas City. I'm Steve Kraske. Maybe you've noticed, but lots of misinformation is sprouting up about the coronavirus. We'll begin today with a true-false rundown aimed at straightening things out. Then, a look back at how another president handled a nation in crisis, and that's our own Harry Truman. Later, we'll turn to an entirely different topic, and that's spring gardening and how COVID-19 is changing things. First up, though, we've got KCUR's Dan Margulies on the line to talk about a plea from a Leewood organization to the federal government. Dan, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What are you reporting today, Dan?
2: Well, I'm reporting a lot of things, but one of the things that I'm interested in looking at is the potential for legal liability on the part of health care providers who withhold or withdraw um, ventilators and other such things in the event Uh, that they have to triage or ration care. Hmm. It's a very interesting question, and it's arisen in other states, uh, the question of whether they could be sued for medical malpractice in doing so. When, you know, if it comes to that worst-case scenario, and there is more demand than there are ventilators, and hospitals have to make these awful decisions, Hmm. are they going to be subject to any kind of legal liability?
1: Well, the financial health of rural hospitals in both Kansas and Missouri, uh, they are already suffering. Tell me about that as well.
2: Yeah, Steve. So, you know, we all know rural populations are older on average and tend to have poor overall health. They have higher rates of chronic illnesses, heart disease, diabetes, lung conditions, and uh, those put them at greater risk of becoming severely ill and dying if they become infected with the coronavirus. And then there is a very big disparity in mortality rates between urban and rural areas, which have been exacerbated by the much-talked-about deaths of despair from alcohol and drugs and suicide. And and there's a greater incidence in rural areas of conditions like heart disease, type 2 diabetes, stroke. So you throw in the measures we're taking now to curb the spread of the coronavirus, social distancing, self-isolation, and the resulting economic implosion. And you're looking at a recipe for disaster, possible mm-hmm. disaster in rural areas.
1: COVID-19 hasn't been a huge problem yet in rural America, but I guess that may not hold, right?
2: Of course not. I mean, <laughs> you know, this uh, virus is, uh, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't respect borders. It doesn't respect state lines. It doesn't respect uh, communities. And we're seeing the spread of the coronavirus now in rural areas, in Colorado, in Utah, in Idaho which is meeting resistance uh, after the governor uh, pushed for social distancing measures and for stay-at-home, issued a stay-at-home order. We're seeing these um, sort of anti-government types resisting. Uh, We're seeing the coronavirus spread in Louisiana, which is now one of the uh, hot spots. So, yeah, no rural area is immune, and uh, increasingly we're going to see the focus uh, on, on rural areas.
1: That's KCUR's Dan Margulies. Dan, always appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Steve. Thanks. Take care. With so much information flying around about the coronavirus, we thought it would be good to visit with an expert again to clear away some of the falsehoods out there. We're going to touch on the impact of summertime temperatures on the virus, on the impact of bleach, and whether a nice spring rain makes playground equipment safe to use. With us once again is Dr. Marianne Jackson. She's a UMKC professor with a specialty in infectious disease, and she's the interim dean of the UMKC School of Medicine. Dr. Jackson, thank for taking time with us again.
3: Good morning, Steve. How are you?
1: I'm well, thank you. And let's run down some of these misconceptions that are out there, Dr. Jackson. How about this one? Heat kills the coronavirus.
3: Well, there's no evidence that uh, heat as in terms of temperature, is going to make this coronavirus go away. But what we do know is this. This particular virus has an envelope around it, and that envelope, its outer cover, is oily. And much like fat on cooked meat, it hardens as it cools to protect the virus from uh, when it's outside the body. So many viruses, we know wax and wane in seasons. For instance, influenza is always a winter virus, and there are some introviruses that come in the summertime, but we don't know what the seasonal pattern will be for this particular virus, and we don't know that as the temperature gets warmer, the virus will no longer be protected and go away. In fact, we do know that When Spanish influenza way long ago came, it peaked in the summer. So Hmm. pandemic viruses, we cannot predict.
1: So how about this one then, Dr. True or False, drinking hot water will help? There's
3: evidently uh, there's no evidence that uh, you can flush the virus from your system by drinking hot water or say t- taking a hot bath. You should drink water though to keep yourself hydrated, and that's recommended for all. But you can't flush it out of your system by drinking hot water.
1: So true or false, a day of rain followed by sunshine makes playground equipment safe again.
3: So that would be false. And it's important to know that we do not know how to decontaminate uh, a playground, for instance. We know that the virus can stay on plastic and stainless steel and less likely to stay on wood, for instance, but there's no good evidence that following rain and with a day of sunshine, that playground equipment is safe. In fact, new information uh, from the CDC says we don't know how to manage these outside spaces, and we'll learn more. So right now, it's important not to go near the playground, not only for the fact that we don't know how to decontaminate playground equipment, but also because this is a natural tendency for people to gather together. And it looks like in the Kansas City area, we're starting to flatten that curve. We wanna really recommit and commit really hard to social distancing right now.
1: So more true or false here. True or false, you can't get the virus twice, doctor. So if you're healthy, you should deliberately inoculate yourself.
3: Oh, my goodness. Well, this isn't the first time people talked about uh, trying to intentionally expose themselves to viruses. I remember back twenty. plus years ago when people participated in chickenpox parties to intentionally expose their unvaccinated children to chickenpox in hopes that they'd get the disease. But what we know back then is we couldn't predict who would have severe disease and who wouldn't. And in fact, children can and did die from chickenpox before vaccine. So now that bad idea has emerged related to COVID-19 And just a few weeks ago, there was a coronavirus party in uh, Kentucky, and this was mainly young people who had gotten together. So here's the important piece there. Young people are less at risk of developing serious complications of COVID-19, but they can still get serious symptoms and require hospitalizations and rarely die. But this is the important part too. Even for someone who contracts a mild case of the disease, it can spread to vulnerable people. So that's one of the reasons we're trying to make sure that all of us, including young people, understand the critical requirement to socially distance and to avoid group gatherings. So, so if bad you, idea.
1: Doctor, if you've had the virus then, does that inoculate yourself against getting it again?
3: So that's a very important concept, and that is for every infection, uh, the body will develop an immune response and actually protect you from further infections uh, with that same virus. We do not know the immunology of this virus sufficiently to know whether or not you're protected or for how long you're protected after you develop infection related to this virus. People all around the United States are working on developing an antibody test, but we really need to study this more closely to find out after infection, who develops antibody and how long those antibodies last. So we can't, we don't know for sure that one infection and you're done. More than likely, that's not the case.
1: I've heard this word proning lately. Is proning effective to help relieve virus symptoms? And doctor, what on earth is proning?
3: So proning is a technique where an individual who's in respiratory distress in particular respiratory failure is placed face down. So you normally can you have a vision of people being in the hospital and on the ventilator on their back. Right. Well the prone position lying face down was shown in a small study to result in better lung function with better oxygen levels. So this treatment is being incorporated into care right now because basically what we have is a disease for which there's no specific treatment and we're relying on supportive care that includes oxygen and IV fluids and mechanical ventilation. And we're just starting to study some of the other therapies that you've probably heard
1: about. Well, here's one of them. Is cupping effective to relieve virus symptoms? And again, what is cupping?
3: Cupping is a process where the skin is bruised using a suction cup over the skin. It's a process that's used in traditional uh, Chinese medicine for a variety of ailments. It's being studied in the Chinese population, in those who are recovering from COVID-19 There's no evidence that this is beneficial. It's important for pediatricians and doctors that take care of adults to recognize that because this is used in some um, Chinese medicine uh, treatments, that if you see a child with this very symmetric bruise on their skin to inquire whether or not the family has participated in this process called cupping and so know what it is know that it there's no evidence that it has a beneficial effect at this point but recognize what it is because otherwise the child's skin looks bruised in a pattern that raises concern for doctors
1: true or false doctor I traveled internationally in November and got super sick with a respiratory bug in December did I have the virus
3: No way of telling, and I'll tell you why. We know for fact that that was still in our influenza season, and this was a particularly severe influenza season that lasted a long time. But not only was just influenza circulating, but there were about a dozen other viruses that were circulating at that same time. There is no way to tell if you had COVID-19 just based on developing symptoms that were really bad in December.
1: You can ward off the virus by eating food with a higher pH level. True or false, doctor?
3: There's no data, really, that eating a particular kind of diet is going to protect you from uh, COVID-19. I think part of this uh, relates to the fact that they th- uh, some individuals have thought have, have the thinking that they can wash the virus down the esophagus uh, into the stomach where it will be diluted in acid. That
1: was my next one. yeah
3: yes and if it's diluted in acid, does that inactivate the virus? There's no data to support that. And so I there's no food. There is no um, other process that you can with drinking water, washing it down, um, gargling with water or an antiseptic solution that is going to prevent you from getting COVID-19.
1: How about this? Um, Along the same lines, drinking bleach will kill the virus, and that's a good thing to do.
3: No, that's a bad thing to do. It's not a cure and it's dangerous. Uh, It can result in vomiting, diarrhea, liver failure. And so where we should use bleach is on surfaces. To clean our surfaces, no one
1: should drink bleach. Livestock can get it and pass it through our food supply. What about that one?
3: So I understand where people might Be worried about the food supply because there are some food products that can become contaminated with germs and can pose a uh, a risk for transmission to humans. And an example with, of that would be norovirus. And norovirus, you've heard of, the, you know, kind of the cruise ship virus that mm-hmm. can pass person to person. Um, it can come from contaminated food. But there's no evidence that livestock or any other food product in the U.S. is a vector for transmission of this particular coronavirus. It's a respiratory virus, it's not a GI virus. So there are no food product recalls, the U.S. food supply is safe, and people should not worry that they're going to get that from eating foods.
1: One more, doctor. A tiger at the Bronx Zoo caught COVID-19 from a human. We know that. So the question is, can our pets spread the coronavirus to us?
3: So the initial report of an animal being positive for coronavirus came out of Hong Kong where a dog was tested and tested positive. And the thought there was that the dog had been contaminated by secretions from the infected pet owner. So at this point there are a few reports of animals who are developing symptoms and testing positive. In general, there is no risk from your pet, but if you are infected, and just as a matter of practice, people shouldn't be kissing or licking their dog or sharing food with their dog. And when you're caring for your pets, wash your hands before and after.
1: Okay. Dr. Jackson, that was terrific. That's Dr. Marianne Jackson. She's the interim dean of the UMK School of Medicine. Thanks for the good rundown. We sure appreciate it.
3: Good to talk with you, Steve.
1: Once upon a time, a president of the United States who didn't earn a college degree faced the prospect of succeeding a legendary leader with the world at war, making decisions about dropping nuclear weapons for the first time, deciding how to save Western Europe, not to mention whether to end racial segregation in the armed forces. That president, of course, was our own Harry Truman, and how he responded in the 1940s just might have some application even today as America battles its way through a pandemic. Joining a now is A.J. Boehm. He's the author of The Accidental President, About the First Four Months of the Truman Presidency, as well as the upcoming book, Dewey Defeats Truman. A.J., good morning.
4: Steve, a pleasure to be with you again. Thank you.
1: You know, we aren't the only people talking about Harry Truman these days, A.J. I I can't help but note that both Speaker Nancy Pelosi and commentator Bill Kristol invoked the work of our 33rd president in recent days. Are you surprised?
4: I'm not. You know, um, it's amazing to think it's Truman today seems to be a touchstone amazingly for politicians, you know, on the right, on the left. Um, I remember hearing Judge Roy Roy Moore in uh, campaigning in Alabama, quoting Truman. And, um, you know, when Trump went for the first time, President Trump, before the United Nations, he quoted Truman So it's fascinating to think, why is this happening? Why is he a touchstone now 75 years after he became president? And we can get into that. There are a number of reasons.
1: Well, it's hard to imagine today uh, what a shock it was to the country when President Roosevelt died and this little known vice president from Missouri took over. How much did the country know about Harry Truman back in April '45?
4: One of the reasons—it's a great question, Steve. One of the reasons why he's—I uh, think—Truman has spoken so much about today is because he's a—he was a crisis president, and he his presidency literally began amongst two massive crises. This is 75 years ago, the first was the uh, the death of FDR. You know, FDR had been president longer than any other uh, president ever. And some people serving in the military, younger younger people had never known any other president in their lifetime. So it was very much a shock to the nation when FDR died. Um, But the bigger shock was Truman. He was a man who had never been the mayor of a city, never been the governor of a state, never had the money to own his home, suddenly inheriting a world war. And, uh, you know, the senator from Michigan, Arthur Vandenberg, wrote in his diary that night something that sums up what I think everybody was feeling that night. And he wrote, the gravest question mark in every American heart is Truman Hmm. can he swing the job and I think he was expected to fail
1: huh well it's hard to believe now but didn't Harry Truman right after he took took the oath of office AJ didn't he turn to the people gathered in the Oval Office including the reporters there and ask them to pray for him
4: he did he did and it was a a humanizing um, moment for for Truman and the country and you know it's amazing to think that night Truman becomes president. Um, he did not know about the uh, imploding relations with the Soviet Union. The The Cold War had really kind of started. He didn't even know it. He didn't even know about the war's greatest secret, which was the atomic bombs.
1: Because FDR kept him in the dark, right?
4: Yeah. Some would say that that was FDR's greatest secret mistake as a president. I would, I would subscribe to that point of view. I think FDR was obviously an amazing president, but that, that, that was a mistake.
1: So on the day he takes over the country, AJ, what's on Harry Truman's plight?
4: Well, uh, he has to very quickly get up to speed with all the crises that, that are happening during the climactic months of world war II. Hmm. Um, he's got to find out about the Manhattan project. He has to find out where the troops were all over the country. You know, the vice president, uh, is often thought of, or was in those days as the most sort of very much a figurehead position. So Truman really did not know what was going on. And he was planning that night on April 12th, by the way, there's so much material in in the Truman library on that night that, um, I, the first 38 pages of the accidental president really cover that one day and that one night, Hmm. um, but it's fascinating to me that Truman during the day, he was setting up a poker game. He was going to drink bourbon and play poker with his friends. That's what he was planning to do that night.
1: But he didn't play that game, I, I gather.
4: He did not play that game. Yeah. He ended up, you know, one of the most touching moments uh, uh, to me is, you know, Truman had an amazing uh, ability amidst times of crisis to get a good night's sleep. And uh, on April 12th that night, he went home and went to bed. And um, in the middle of the night, he was awoken by the woman who was now the first lady of the nation sobbing in her bed. And when you think about that moment and what that man must have been feeling, um, it's, it's, it's amazing.
1: You know, th- there are those photographs of uh, Harry Truman taking the oath of office and uh, Bess Truman, his wife, is standing next to him. Margaret Truman is right there, too, of course. And the look on Bess Truman's face to describe that look as stricken would be fairly accurate, I think.
4: Uh, both of their faces. You can look, look at that picture and they personify not just what America was thinking and feeling, but what their family was feeling. One of the amazing things about Truman, um, was that he was an extraordinary family man and he kept a diary and he wrote a lot of letters to his wife and daughter. So you could really go back. I mean, you can read them in the Truman library today and, and, and even on the website and really get a sense of who this man was through his his family values and his relationship to his wife and daughter. But yes, to answer your question, to look at their faces, um, that really says it all. And I
1: think part of this comes from the fact that just 20, 25 years earlier, Harry Truman was something of a lost soul, right? He's living in his mother-in-law's home. He's having trouble finding uh, a way to make a living. And this was not somebody, uh, a man who had greatness written all over him.
4: No, and to me, it can only be subscribed to fate, what happened to this man. He became the most powerful man in the world, in his own words, by accident. There's a man, he was a farmer, farmed in obscurity for much of his life, very much a failed businessman. People in the Kansas City area, they know Truman was a failed haberdasher. Um, And he gets sent up to to Washington through the uh, Pendergast machine, which you know, was this twist of fate, never expected, certainly not by him. And that's one of the reasons why he was so obscure when he became president that everybody expected him to fail.
1: I'm visiting with A.J. Baim. He's the author of The Accidental President. He has a new book coming out in a few months, Dewey Defeats Truman, that paints again that uh, miraculous 1948 presidential campaign that nobody thought he was going to win. So what made Harry Truman ultimately— ultimately, then, A.J., such an effective leader?
4: Well, great question. Um, To me, well, there's two answers. I'll give you my answer, and then I'll give you the answer that he would give where he's sitting on this interview right now. Mm -hmm. To me, it's just the fact that he was a man of character, um, and he had the courage to make excruciating decisions. He once wrote, uh, I'm just looking at my notes at this wonderful quote, to be president of the United States is to be lonely, very lonely at times of great decisions. And, um, he had the courage to make those decisions and accept responsibility for them. Uh, he was, uh, you know, a man who sat behind a desk with a sign that said the buck stops here, you know, politics, politicians talk about family values. He lived them. Politicians talk about the ability to make hard decisions and Truman did. And, uh, the second way to answer the question, if he were on this call, he would say that it was those decisions that made him so successful and made his legacy what it is today. You know, um, he said himself that a lot of the decisions he made were so complicated it would take 50 years before we would know whether they were good decisions hmm. or not. Things like the Marshall Plan, the Truman Doctrine, desegregation of the military, whether or not to recognize the state of Israel on that night Israel was founded against the, the harshly worded opposition of his own State Department and the Secretari- Secretary of Defense, these were awfully excruciating decisions, and he made them, and it turns out he made them wisely.
1: I was going to say, as it turns out, this man who never graduated from college is ranked today among the top half dozen greatest presidents in the history of this country. It's just
4: phenomenal to me. It is, you know, and why is that? What's amazing, Steve, is to think about when he finished in Washington, he uh, was very unpopular. And uh, he was he was very pop- he was extremely well liked. He was known as the politician that nobody hated, because mm-hmm. he he was so beloved as a character. But politically, he was very unpopular. And the Republicans uh, won a landslide in the '52 election, swept Truman and the Democrats out of office, and he goes home and lives quietly in independence uh, as a a man who's thought of you know as a very mediocre president. Why is he so well regarded now? Why is Nancy Pelosi talking about him on Colbert? Why is Donald Trump quoting him before the United Nations? That's something that deserves a book in itself.
1: Because he wasn't afraid to make unpopular decisions, even as he was running for election uh, to the presidency of the country in 48. He was uh, vetoing bills that people wanted to see uh, signed, right?
4: Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things I get into uh, in the new book is his decision to really back civil rights and knowing, having the courage to do that and knowing that it was gonna shatter his own party. And in fact, it it did. It it resulted in a massive revolt of the Southern Democrats that eventually aligned that whole part of the country with the Republican party. But he thought, obviously he knew it was politically wise, but he knew it was morally wise. And it's often talked about like whether he supported civil rights um, just to win the election. And I can tell you, having done all of this work, digging so deep into the archives at the Truman Library, I can say that it was very much a moral decision. And, you know, I would think that a great majority of Americans today would say that that was a good one. That was the beginning of the modern civil rights movement.
1: Hmm. How did he manage all the stress he was under?
4: You know, I knew you were going to ask that question. I I, I put a lot of thought into it because (laughs) I realized that, you know, one of the things that I found in the Truman Library were all his medical reports because Dr. Wallace Graham, his doctor, would look after him every day because everybody knew how much stress he was under managing these crises. And his blood pressure was way better than mine ever is. <laughs> and I'm much younger than he is. How did he do that? And it occurred to me that he, the way he conducted his life, th- there were certain things about it that all of us can look at today and in the way that we're dealing with this stress of our this crisis today. One of the things is, he went for walks. He did a, a walk every day, 120 steps a minute, army marching speed. Um, he had a profound talent of sleeping well, as I mentioned. And you know, people today they, their schedules are messed up. Kids aren't in school, and it's um, it's important to get a good night's sleep, obviously. Um, one of the things that he did every day was he stopped and had a drink with his wife and he separated himself from his work for a moment to reflect. And another thing that uh, he did was he kept a diary. And that's something that I think particularly young people can be doing today because mm. it helps you therapeutically. It helps you get your thoughts out on paper. And, um, but it's also something you can come back to just like we can go back to the Truman Library and read that diary, those diaries now. They, they they can teach us a lot about what was going on and the person who was writing in that diary.
1: You know, I always got the impression about Harry Truman, A.J., that he made a decision and then walked away from it. He didn't spend a lot of time second guessing it, even the dropping of those atomic weapons over Japan. Am I seeing that accurately?
4: Absolutely. I was just reading a newspaper article from 1950 something yesterday about truman Uh, a reporter was in the white house and truman had just made some very difficult decision and he was to be found frolicking in the pool in the white house pool and it wasn't that he was taking these decisions lightly it was that he knew that after he made these decisions he couldn't unmake them and so the only thing to do was to keep on moving on and that's another lesson that we can all all will
1: think to heart. Having said that, was there one decision in the course of all these magnificently difficult decisions he had to make during those first months and years in the White House that he struggled over the most?
4: Well, obviously, the probably the most controversial decision any president has ever made was to drop the bombs, and, uh, you know, in the Truman library it is being renovated right now. That'll be done soon. But they, there was this big book and anybody who went in there could write, whether they thought that that was a good idea or a bad one. Um, and when you look at all the writings in there, you'd see the chicken scratch of little kids, uh, you know, giving their opinion and, um, and then other people writing long essays in longhand, how they felt about that. And, you know, What's what's extraordinary to me about that decision, having done so much research on it, is that it it was actually easier than for Truman, I think, than we can imagine, because it was about saving American lives and ending the war, which it did. It did both. And um, today, if you look at the polls, uh, most Americans think that he was justified. if you look at the polls in Japan, not so much.
1: You know, I was uh, going through your new book, Dewey Defeats Truman, that'll be out in June, I believe. And I was struck by a couple of things that I had sort of forgotten. When he ran for the presidency in 48 on his own for the first time, even his mother-in-law thought he was going to lose. And in the book, you chronicle all these missteps he made early in the campaign, which to me makes it all the more miraculous that he wound up winning the thing in the end.
4: Well, one of the things I love about writing about Truman, um, sort of, I've written now two and a quarter books about him. Um, <laughs> he he finds himself at the center of these epic stories that fall into perfect narrative arcs. You know, as as writers of narrative nonfiction, we always start th- think you can't you have to start with the climax of the story and work your way backwards because if there's no climax, then you don't have a really good story. And the forty eight election was obviously a, a hugely cl- climactic moment, and the reason why is because. Nobody expected this guy to win. And he fought and fought and fought, and we're able to reconstruct so much about what he was doing and how the mechanics of the campaign and how the speeches were written and how he did, how he campaigned in an unprecedented way that uh, gave him the greatest electioneering upset in the history of the country up to that time. Hmm.
1: That's A.J. Baim again, author of The Accidental President, also the author of the upcoming book, Dewey Defeats Truman. A.J., it's always great to visit with you. Thanks for the good rundown.
4: Praying for everybody's well-being. Thank you, Steve.
1: After a short break, we'll come back and we'll talk about something very different. That's gardening in the age of COVID-19. I'm Steve Kraske, and you're listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. And welcome back. I am Steve Kraske. COVID-19 is making everything different, including gardening. Getting seeds or mulch is tricky these days and in an era of social distancing. So how are people managing? And what's the future of community gardens these days when people can't work side by side? Joining us to talk about all this, Dan Kroll is with the Westport Common Farm. Commons Farm. He's a volunteer coordinator for Cultivate KC. Dan, nice to have you, welcome. Hey, Steve. Great to be on. Tamara Rial is a field specialist in horticulture at the University of Missouri Extension. Tamara, nice to have you, too.
0: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: Dan, how are Kansas Citians managing these days when it comes to gardening? What are you, what are you seeing out there?
5: Well, a lot of us who who are regular gardeners and farmers already, um, this is a very busy time of the year. And so we're kind of, you know, just doing our normal routines. Um obviously with the social distancing, uh, but, but you know, a lot of there, like you mentioned, there's a lot of people who have been suddenly interested in, in gardening at home. So, um, you know, we've seen a lot of interest, a lot of uh, questions coming in about how to get started, you know, how to garden if you've never gardened before. So that's that's been a little bit different, but, but it's sort of, um, you know, kind of just business as usual for the for the farming community at this time of the year.
1: Uh, Tamra, you notice the same sort of thing? Are you seeing more people interested in gardening right now, and and what's driving that?
0: Well, we definitely are seeing more people interested in gardening. Like Dan said, this is the time of year when people are are thinking about gardening. Um, With the NU Extension, we are involved in the education world, and so um, part of that with my Extension Master Gardeners, or EMGs, we have gardens all across the the metro area. Um, Because of the stay-at-home orders, and NU also has a stay-at-home order, we're not able to be in our gardens, so our gardeners are actually quite anxious to get back outside.
1: What's changed for them, Tamara? What, What have you noticed that, how's the virus changing the world of gardening?
0: Well, gardening can be uh, something that you do in your own yard, but when you have a community garden, it's something that you look forward to doing with other people. And so part of what we're experiencing is people, we can't have people in the gardens because we are, we're we're anxious for people to have be, be healthy. That's, that's our first priority. And so if they're not able to go out and be in gardens that that, that's hard, but but there are other opportunities to work in your own yard and, and to still do educational um, events. And so we're, we're moving things online so people have an opportunity to still learn hmm. how, how to garden.
1: Dan, what have you noticed? How is COVID-19 changing the world of gardening?
5: Well, for me personally, I rely on volunteers and, and, like you said, the community, the people who come to the community garden to get a lot of the work done at Westport Commons Farm and also at Mannheim Park Community Garden. And so currently, I can't have volunteer groups, I can't do tours, um, you know, I can't interact with people. And so that has really put a lot of pressure on me personally to get a lot of the work done, you know, the physical work done that we would normally have through our educational volunteer opportunities. Now, we're still having people come to the garden and do work. We just can't have, you know, big groups and people have to work separately Um, same thing at the community garden, we're, we're not, you know, we're having our meetings online or we're spacing ourselves out. We're trying to schedule times when we can be there when there's not a crowd or, you know, a group of people over 10. So, you know, it's a little, it's a little complicated, but, um, but we're finding ways to get it done.
1: I'm wondering if our listeners have questions about getting started in gardening or questions about how to keep their gardens growing uh, this season. Our phone number here, 816-235-2888. Again, 816-235-2888. You can tweet us at KCUR up to date. Um, To what extent are are people finally realizing, Dan, how important it is to support our local farmers and to grow uh, our own food during a crisis like this?
5: Well, you know, we we talk about this a lot in our in our meetings at Cultivate. Um, It's 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 interesting because we're always talking about the importance of stable local food systems and how our our food system, as it currently is set up. You know, over 50 percent of our food is getting shipped in from California. You know, most of our foods coming in from California, Texas, Florida, Central, South America. Uh, If something happens, you know, that disrupts that delivery system, then we just don't have food available at our grocery stores. So one, you know, if you can call it a positive, one thing that is a positive about this is that people are getting to see what it might feel like if you go to the grocery store and there's nothing to get, you Mm -hmm. know, no food. And so that provides a little bit of a motivation for people to finally think about like how important it is to have local farmers growing healthful produce, um, And just to have that stable availability of something to eat at all, because really when it comes down to
1: it, what do we need more than, than food and shelter? Right. Are you seeing the same thing, Tamara, as you talk to uh, your folks?
0: We, well, we're, we're seeing that um, people, when they want to get out, um, they're, they're looking for ways that they can do it in a safe way. And so, um, there, there are different things that we can do to be safe when, when we get out. Um, and and part, of, part, of, part of gardening is knowing how to do it safely, especially in this COVID-19 era. So, so University of Missouri has been trying to put together some recommendations for people if, if they're gardening for the first time, um, but also if you do need to get out, if, if you're going to a uh, community garden, things that you can do to stay safe.
1: I wanna bring in Bahia Brown into our conversation. She's an administrator for the Facebook group, KC Area Gardening Group. Welcome, nice to have you.
6: Thanks, Steve.
1: Um, tell yeah. me a l- little bit about the uptick in gardening that you've noticed among the people you're working with.
6: We have had a huge uptick this spring in new members um, and a lot of first-time gardeners, um, and I think that you know, we're in crazy times right now, and I think that people really are are kind of wanting to get back to the earth and find some sense and everything that's going on. And, uh, and I'm hearing the word victory the term victory garden being thrown around a lot. Um, so I think that's kind of, you know, we're all looking to get back to that. You know,
1: remind people what victory gardens were back in the day.
6: Um, I think it started in World War II times, um, and it was just kind of a way of getting people to be their own food source, um, that, you know, there was the, the, um, they talked about how, how every garden was an ammunition factory. And I know that sounds awful, but, you know, it, it helped free up transportation and, um, You know, a lot of workers around the country, if people could provide their own food sources. And I think right now when we're seeing empty grocery store shelves, people are starting to think, wow, I kind of need to grow my own food, can for winter, (laughs) those kinds of things. I was going
1: to say it was seen as as kind of a patriotic thing to do, right, Bahia?
6: Yeah, I think it was. I think it very much was. And I think it was also sorry go
1: ahead well you were saying about uh, this tremendous uptick in the number of people interested in gardening what what do you think is driving that
6: i think that well one a lot of people are home you know probably most people and you know like looking for something to do a way to get outside get some fresh air Um, but i think before the stay at home order we were already seeing a pretty big surge in new members. um so i'm really i'm not entirely sure i think that you know, I don't know. I mean, i really, I think part of it's COVID, but I think that maybe people are starting to really realize how important it is to have fresh local food.
1: Right, right. How is uh, social distancing impacting the way uh, people are working their gardens, Bahia? What, what are you seeing there?
6: Um, we are seeing a lot of people who definitely don't want to go out to garden centers and nurseries to get products, although I'm hearing that the the garden centers that are open are are pretty full. Um, We have encouraged our members to reach out to each other, Um, you know, if they have extra seeds, if they have extra starts, that maybe they can exchange them, practicing social distancing, um, you know, maybe pick up in each other's driveways. Um, I don't know. I think that that people definitely are trying to protect themselves. We not seeing a lot of people super excited about getting out and and buying plants. And I'm hearing that I'm hearing that there's a shortage of seeds. I don't know if this is factual, but um, I'm hearing a lot of seed companies are, are starting to run low.
1: I want to ask Dan and Tamara about that very point. I I want to thank Bahia Brown. She's an administrator for the Facebook group, KC Area Gardening Group. Thanks for your time. We sure appreciate it.
6: Thank you, Steve.
1: I want to point out that the MU Extension Service is sponsoring a town hall about home horticulture on Wednesdays from 11 to noon. People can register and then ask uh, ask questions online at ipmmissouriedu uh, slash town halls if you're interested in there and we'll put that link on our webpage. And also extension master gardeners are also always available at their hotline number, that number 816 816- 833-TREE, that's 8733, again, 816-833-TREE. Tamara Rial, is there a seed shortage right now? What what are you seeing?
0: Well, um, I have seen uh, articles in the news saying that there are, because of this they're, they're crisis gardening, people are wanting to get out and garden, and when they're seeing shortages of food in the grocery store, they're naturally going to think about gardening for themselves. Many of these people are going to be first-time gardeners. Um, I have heard that there are a shortage a shortage of seeds, but that doesn't mean that there aren't seeds available. It means that um, these seed companies are, are putting together the seed packets um, based on what they needed last year, and so and um, when people are putting in an order for seeds, whereas they might have gotten it in a week, it might take a month to get those seeds.
5: Dan,
1: are you seeing the same thing?
5: Yeah, exactly what she just said i It, it isn't necessarily that there's a shortage of seeds. it's that there's suddenly more demand than they're ready for. so you'll you'll find that there are delays in, you know if you i I just saw an article about territorial seeds saying that the, you know they might have to wait three or four weeks to get their order out just because they're they're not prepared to to cover this much um. You know, d- demand or volume. We're having a, uh, a plant sale here at Westport Commons Farm on May 9th, and uh, we've had a huge response just to the hmm. few Facebook posts we've made on that. So I think people are very interested in getting a hold of, of plants and seeds this year.
1: What are you going to be selling at that uh, market? Um,
5: mostly mostly vegetable and fruit plants, so tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, you know, just the the common summer summer crops. We will have some flowers for pollinating and uh things like that as well.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to up-to-date special coverage coronavirus in Kansas City, and we're talking uh for this segment about gardening. Your questions about getting started uh, or anything else are welcome. 816-235-2888 or tweet us at KCUR up to date. Tamara, the upside to gardening during a crazy time like this is what?
0: Well, um, since we're all at home, this is an opportunity to try new things. We, there is food in the grocery store, so it isn't like if you if you fail, you're not going to have food to eat. So this is a great time to to try out some new new things. Put a garden in your backyard. If you don't have a yard, you could use a container on a patio. If you don't have a con- patio, you can even grow herbs on your windowsill. Huh. It's just, this is a great time to try it.
1: Does anybody, Tamara, does anybody really fail at gardening? Is it possible to completely shoot craps on the whole idea?
0: I hear a lot of people say I have a black thumb, not me personally, <laughs> but like they'll say, I, I can't grow anything. Um, and usually what it, what that really is, is they just don't know how. And so this is, this is a good time. There's so much information available. Um, there's many, many educational programs online. Um, you can call the Master Gardeners. There's a lot of people that you can talk to to learn how to do it. This is the perfect time to do it.
1: Dan, what's happening to farmers markets around town? Are they still operating, still functional? What are you seeing?
5: Yeah, they're, they're working it out. I, I think they're basically what they're trying to do is figure out ways to get as many things either delivered or picked up in a more of a CSA model, but still keeping the farmers markets open so that people can come. Um, they're setting it up so that there's less opportunity for people to gather. There's more opportunities for bringing things to people's windows so that they are finding solutions. And uh, so, so that that is obviously we consider that essential. So finding finding solutions for that was something that we immediately started to work on.
1: But what's turnout at those markets like and what impact will that have on continuing these things?
5: You know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I haven't been to the few markets that have been open yet this year. Um, but I'm assuming that that we will still have a, a, a demand on food just like we always do or maybe more so for local food. You know, one thing about local produce is that it is much more... Uh, nutritionally and flavorfully dense than food that you're going to get that's been shipped uh, from long distances away. There's lots right. of reasons for that, but one of them is the longer something has sat around after it's been picked, the the more the plant metabolizes the the nutrients. So uh, when you're thinking about trying to keep yourself healthy, there's really nothing more healthful than taking a a piece of produce right from a plant and putting it into your mouth because it's going to have the most. Um, you know, nutrients for you, and that's going to make your immune
1: system stronger and, and actually help you stay healthy at this this time. Tamara, what have you noticed when it comes to turnout at farmer's markets? Have you been able to get out to them?
0: Um, unfortunately, I haven't. Uh, I've, I've heard that there are a lot of places that we're trying to get farmer's markets out, but because of the social distancing, people are a little bit nervous. Um, but being out in the open air and if, and if you're careful, um, I think it's a great place to go to get your food.
1: And what about community gardens these days? How, how are they holding up and how are they being affected, Tamara?
0: Um, well, Dan Dan is a good resource on that because he, he has his gardens open. Um, what we are telling people, if you are going to go out to a garden, uh, first of all, if you're sick or you've been around someone who's sick, please stay home. Um, But if you are able to go out, make sure that you you wash your hands before you go. Use hand sanitizer. You might want to consider bringing your own tools. Um, Disinfect um, everything uh, before you use it, before you go. Think of it as if the person who was there before you could be sick and not even know it. So just act as if um, they are, and just protect yourself. And when you go home, make sure that you wash your hands again. It's it's good to be outside. Yeah. Um, We just need to be careful.
1: Dan, hop in here about community gardens.
5: Yeah, same here. Uh, you know, basic social distancing information, you know, not gathering in groups. For, for example, I, I volunteer over at Mannheim Park Community Garden, and we usually have two work days a week where we all get together and work in a big group. Um, you know, that's really handy when everybody has to work, and there's only a couple of days a week when they can get out. But now that people are home, they can come during the week. So what we're doing is basically just spreading that out so that we're not there in groups, Maintaining safe distances, you know, not using shared tools, just like Tamra mentioned. So, uh, just basic common sense stuff, but still allowing people to get out and and uh, do stuff. You know, one thing at Mannheim, we can't just shut it down because we have a flock of ducks and chickens that have to be cared for on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of we we provide a lot of food for our volunteers and our neighbors. Um, so, uh, you know, but one thing we haven't mentioned yet is, is our planting plan and how that has shifted. So normally we would be growing a lot of, um, varieties of, you know, say lettuces and things like that, but we focus now on, we're trying to grow more calorically dense, storable or pickleable things, things that are shelf stable. So we're switching to a planting plan. That's predominated by potatoes, you know, sweet mm. potatoes, root crops, things that you can, you know, put in a pick, put in a pickle jar, put in your basement for the
1: winter. Let's go to some phone calls at 816-235-2888. Melody from Kansas City, Missouri. Good morning.
6: Hi, Steve. How's it going?
1: Well, thanks, Melody. Thanks for calling.
6: Yeah. Um, My question is, I am going to be a first-time gardener this year, and I am excited to start planting things, but I also want to be safe, and so I'm wondering if I could get some recommendations on ordering online, whether that's local or, um, you know, a national provider.
1: How about locally uh, 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 ordering online locally here? Uh, what would the two of you say, Dan? Um,
5: I, I guess I'll, I'll jump in there. Um, I I have seen several feed stores that have offered that are offering uh, local deliveries. Um, I know uh, Waldo Grain, for example, is doing local deliveries within five miles. I would just call your your seed stores. Or your garden centers, and and ask them directly if they can do some sort of window pickup and/or delivery. Uh, And I'm sure that many of them have solutions for that. Um, As far as ordering online, there's there's dozens of great seed catalogs online that you can you can order from. Um, Right now, some of the you know the the thing is when you get on some of these seed catalogs, they're going to have the newest, fanciest, most up-to-date you know sorry sorry steve up to date um <laughs> uh, plant varietals that, that have come from breeders and those are going to be the more expensive ones the ones that catch your eye the ones that people want to try but those old proven winners that have been around for a long time um, are much more inexpensive and available like say at a local feed store you may find that those are easier to get a hold of so like if you go to planters for example they sell bulk seed and it's not going to be the newest model off the uh off the assembly line but it'll be a, a proven old varietal that you can get for inexpensively and there'll probably
1: be a lot of seed around i hope that helps melody
0: yes thank you
1: yeah good luck we sure appreciate it um anything you'd add to that Tamara that idea of uh ordering uh produce uh, locally or uh, what would you throw in there
0: well i would also add that uh, start small if this is your first time gardening don't put your whole yard into vegetables and <laughs> um, remember also that a, a single seed packet typically has quite a bit of food or food potential so each seed is going to be able to develop into multiple fruits usually right. and so you don't need to buy a ton of packets you just need to get just a couple
1: Okay, we'll leave our conversation there. I want to thank uh, Tamara Rial, a field specialist in horticulture at the University of Missouri Extension. Dan Crawl is with the Westport Commons Market. He's a volunteer coordinator for Cultivate KC as well. Thank you both for some good information. Appreciate it.
5: Thanks, Steve. Thank you so much.
1: that we're spending more time at home you might find yourself staring out the window more than usual it's unlikely that we'll all get as lucky with what we see as my next guest did though Shannon Lindgren uh, you've been on quite the ride lately I understand it was a few weeks ago that you first noticed that a pair of doves had nested in your fifth floor apartment window and since then a whole lot has happened tell us about it
0: (laughs) hi Steve yes that's correct so (laughs) The first week that my husband and I started working from home, um, we spotted, it was just a couple of days in, and we spotted some eggs right outside our dining room window. And my work from home station is right at the dining table. So we saw the eggs and it was two of them. And then occasionally we would see the parent, the mom and dad parent doves coming in and sitting, taking turns sitting on the eggs. Um, and then just a few days later, uh, the egg hatched. Hmm. It was, I think, that following Saturday. So things moved very quickly. And then um, we kind of got to watch them. It was, uh, you know, I was sitting there every single day and the one, one or the other of the parent doves was sitting on the eggs and they would look in at us. Um, <laughs> and most of the time they were sitting on top of the babies, keeping them, you know, warm and safe. And eventually, and so we couldn't really get a good look at them. But eventually they kind of like, we, we made eye contact constantly. And they kind of, I think they were inviting us over to come see the babies eventually.
1: Huh. Well, what so part of town do you live in, them? Shannon?
0: I'm in, I'm right by the Nelson Atkins Museum, right in the plaza area.
1: Ah. What surprised you most about, you know, watching these baby doves grow up right in front of you?
0: How quickly it happened. Um, they, they went from being tiny to like already starting to flap their wings within about a week, probably. And mm-hmm. it being a lot harder for the mom and dad to sit on them and protect them. Um, and I mean, they, I think I read, I started reading a lot about morning doves and, um, the fact that they co-parent and almost all morning doves mate for life, I thought was really sweet and interesting, and you could see them taking turns caring for the babies. You
1: know, it, it's been pretty windy lately. In fact, we've had some pretty strong winds. Is How big of a concern has that been?
0: <laughs> I was very nervous that night <laughs> that we had like 25-mile-an-hour winds. But the, they, I think they're very strategic in picking our windowsill because it is a couple of inches in, so it was pretty well-protected. Ever since seeing these doves, when I go on walks, I'll notice other doves. Like, there's a lot of morning doves in the area, and some of them are in much more precarious locations, like in trees without even leaves on them. So I think ours were more well-protected than they could have been.
1: So you have smarter doves nesting outside your (laughs) window there.
0: I like to think so.
1: You know, you've been documenting all this on your Instagram page. What's the reception been like, and can people still come check it out?
0: Yes, absolutely. I, all of my friends have just mentioned that, you know, they love this story. They love that there's something bright that we, they can focus on. And I think everyone um, – so the biggest update is over the weekend they left the nest, which is right on time with what I've been reading mm-hmm. due to my Googling. Um, about two weeks they fly down to the ground and then their, the parents feed them on the ground for another two weeks before they become independent. So they've left the nest, and I think everyone's kind of bummed that they're gone now because we have less to focus on. But we've seen them on the ground, and we've seen the parents kind of walking over them. So I feel confident that they're well-protected. This so. happens
1: fast, doesn't it?
0: It's so fast, so fast.
1: They grow up quickly these days, that's for sure, <laughs> Shannon. That's Shannon Lingering talking about the doves outside her apartment window. Thanks for taking some time.
0: Thank you, Steve.
1: We want to hear what's helping you get through these tough times, whether it's a random act of kindness or a personal ritual. Let us know. You can leave a voicemail at 816-398-8207. Give us your name, uh, your brief story, and where you live. You can also email a voicemail to KCUR producer Mackenzie Martin at mckenzie at kcur.org. We'll see you tomorrow. You're listening to -to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City.